Hello, Green Woman Artist listeners. It's Katie here. And just before we get to today's episode with the brilliant Marina Warner, I have some very exciting news. I have written a book. The Story of Art Without Men aims to retell art history with pioneering non-male artists who spearheaded movements and redefined the canon. Published by Penguin and out this September, it is available to pre-order now from Waterstones and more. I have linked to the book in the show notes. But in this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, who have been supporting the GWA podcast for the past two years. Alighieri creates fragmented talismans of imperfection, handcast in London's Hatton Garden from recycled silver and gold. The brand was founded by the wonderful Rosh Matani to guide her through a dark time. Each piece has a story and invites you to unlock your own. Alighieri has entered and reinvented the world of gemstones. I am so excited to tell you about their Garnet series from their latest Autumn-Winter 2022 collection. The series celebrates the force of the Garnet with the dark red gemstone set in Alighieri's signature molten gold. From the encrusted hoop earrings to the vintage-inspired amulet necklace and ring, each gemstone is completely unique and invites you to harness the power within its vast universe. This week, I am travelling to the Venice Biennale and will be wearing the nocturnal Desire Garnet hoops from the Garnet series. Pearls and garnets dance together around the perimeter of the molten gold hoop. I absolutely love this modern take on the freshwater pearls and I can't wait to wear them around Venice and beyond. You can visit the full collection at www.alighieri.com and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators, or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most to them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I'm so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is the historian, mythographer, art critic, novelist and short story writer Marina Warner. A writer of fiction and cultural history with a special focus on myths and fairy tales and the role of women, Marina Warner has published extensively. Her books include studies of the Virgin Mary and Joan of Arc, Fly Away Home, a collection of short stories, Monuments and Maidens about female statues, From the Beast to the Blonde, Once Upon a Time, a short history of fairy tale, among others. She is Professor of English and Creative Writing at Birkbeck College and a Distinguished Fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. She has been elected a Fellow of the British Academy, was awarded the Holberg Prize in the Arts and Humanities in 2015, and two years later was given a World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement Award. In 2017, she became President of the Royal Society of Literature, and this spring she will bring out a paperback version of her memoir fiction, Inventory of a Life Mislaid, about her childhood in Egypt. But... 
The reason why we are speaking with Marina Warner today is because she is also one of the leading art writers and in the past few years has published an extensive collection of essays on art in forms of enchantment, writing on art and artists, which includes text on two artists we will be discussing today. Kiki Smith, the American artist who works across tapestry, sculpture and more, exploring ideas of mythology and regeneration. And the late great British artist Helen Chadwick, a feminist pioneer and the subject of a major monograph by Marina titled Helen Chadwick, The Oval Court, which is out this spring. Marina Warner, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you very much for including me and for asking me these questions. <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to have you on and thank you so much for your time. I'm always fascinated by your art writing. Not only do you come at it from such a sort of interesting perspective, but you open up artists in ways that I never even think about, bringing with you these rich references, visceral and dynamic takes on objects and ideas of mythology and religion. What attracts you to writing about artists and the lives of them? Well, I think that I don't see myself as a critic. That doesn't mean that I'm only a praise singer. I can have reservations in the essays that I write, and I often, of course, don't like artists, and I don't write about them if I don't like them. <laughs> but I do like the process of trying to engage by looking really closely at works of art, usually more than one, in order to see and feel how the artist is interpreting the world. Because even if the works are not representative, I mean, even if they're quite abstract, I mean, you can have woven textile by Annie Albers, for example, but nevertheless, these are in some ways symbolic representations of existence. I like to kind of fuse with the artist. And that means that quite often the pleasure for me in writing is that I make a relationship with them. But it's a kind of communion. The other aspect that intrigues me is that art is its own language, like music. And you don't really need it to be turned into words, and nor with music. But sometimes people can write in such a way that you can see the work in its own medium better you can be helped to know what's going on, why the music is having the effect on you, or even the effect can be described. You know, the, the kind of writing I do is in a very ancient tradition in literature called ekphrasis, which is really vivid description. But vivid description, you know, can go under the layers. It's description of the illusions and the hinterland and the reverberations that are almost, you use the word visceral, but are sort of bodily, what is actually happening to the onlooker to the experiencer of an installation. I mean, Ovid is a you know, great writer of ekphrasis. And in Ovid, it's interesting that this idea that stones speak it runs very deep. You know, the bronze relief speaks. The, the marble is alive. I mean, he even you know, creates that famous myth of Pygmalion, of the statue of Galatea actually coming to life under the sculptor's hands. And you could see that, in a sense, as a way of talking about what happens when we experience a work of art, it somehow begins to live inside us as well. I also think that the artist is a thinker of a different kind from a philosophical thinker, but a very valuable one. And that increasingly artists are rather publicly engaged with how they would like the world to be. And so trying to capture that as well can be a sort of useful task for the reader. And when did you sort of come to art? I mean, was it something that was always present in your life when you were younger? I had an upbringing that 
My father used to pile us into the Hillman Minx and take us. My sister and I each had a pillow in the back of the car, and then he would take us to France and all kinds of things. And I, grew, I grew up partly in Egypt, and then we went to Brussels, and we, we always used to go and see Ghent, the Adoration of the Lamb, the magnificent polyptych. I was very impressed by it as a child. I saw a lot of art as a child, but I didn't see contemporary art until the early 60s when I began to be able to go to exhibitions. And the Tate then was fairly revolutionary. And I saw exhibition of abstract expressionists at the Royal Academy, for example. And then I was in Paris, and I spent most of my time looking at art galleries. And that was my education in contemporary art. I was overboard for it because in those days, contemporary art was throwing over the old order because it was abstract, kinetic. There was a lot of new kinetic light art. They were breaking with the old orders of representation, and that was very exciting, and it was part of the whole feel of the 60s, that maybe a new world could be created. And now it's much contemporary art is much, much more eclectic. There's many more varieties of it, and there's much more of it, of course, too. Totally. It's, it's the way that the world has opened up that we are able to see so much now. But I'm also so intrigued by your words you have written as well. The inner lives of women have also fascinated me. This really kind of intrigued me because obviously you've written about many male artists, Richard Rentworth, Hieronymus Bosch, Henry Fuseli and more. But much of your art writing does centre around women artists. Do you find that you are more drawn to that? I've predominantly been interested in women's work. And that's because when I, honestly, when I started, you had to fight for that. I mean, it was not at all understood or expected. I mean, people, you know, would sort of laugh and say, who are the great women artists? Or indeed, who are the women artists at all? And it's quite astonishing because a lot of them were actually still working and alive, but they were just discounted, except for Barbara Hepworth. Paula Regal was not recognized until the 80s. I mean, that's really astonishing. In her case partly because she was figurative, which was not fashionable. Yeah. But and above all, which not only fashionable, was absolutely condemned and, dis- and disdained, was, of course, narrative art. Narrative art marked you out as a sort of lesser artist, illustrative, anecdotal, or even a cartoon, you know. But Paula herself has been extremely effective in erasing that prejudice, but also raising the idea of illustration in itself and the status of artists who are illustrators. She's very influenced by many illustrators. Mm. So I was partly on a mission, which was all the same with some of my other work. I mean, the work on the Virgin Mary, work on Joan of Arc, of my generation of feminists who wanted to bring women into the light and to hear them and and see them. That, of course, has been achieved. I mean, I, I don't think we should stop nevertheless, but I sort of have lived through a profound change. But your question is much more nuanced than that. It's about the inner lives of women. And that is something that I am looking for in art. I mean, I am looking for the, you know, the soul, the psyche, it's the sense of the person. It doesn't have to be the autobiographical person. It doesn't actually have to be the story of the life. Though sometimes there's a convergence, but not always, actually. You see, Paula, for example has a dark and violent spirit in her paintings. There's nothing of that in her that I've ever seen. I've known her a very long time. She has a mischievous sense of human iniquity. She has a very strong knowledge of what people do to one another. But she herself is not dark in the way that her paintings are dark. So there's not always a seamless continuity between the spirit you can see in the work 
and actually you can reverse that and you can say that some absolute shits are marvelous artists. Yeah. So that's so yeah. the same thing. There's a, there's a disjunction. Mm. You can't say that because, I mean, Caravaggio is a very good example of turbulent life and, you know, he's meant to have killed somebody. But that shouldn't make one not want to look at his paintings of murders. I mean, he sort of understands something about it. Yes. You totally get the inner life of him, in a way, in that work. Yes. With women, there is a sense in which I'm interested in their position, their inner life's position in relation to the traditions and history of women, which comes out you know, very clearly in Kiki Smith and Helen Chadwick. They're both consciously engaged and unconsciously moved by what women do, are, have been, have done, where they could be next. I mean, they're working with material that they're trying to shape to other ends, either critically by critiquing it or by actually revaluing it, re refashioning it. And what I find fascinating, though, specifically about people like Helen Chadwick and Kiki Smith, and I guess these artists who you are drawn to, I feel like there is a thread in something like Fawns of Enchantment, the Louise Bourgeois, you know, th there is that kind of visceral feeling, I think, in all these artists' work. And I mean, similarly, I like a lot of those artists, and I think it's the kind of feeling in the gut that it gets you. And also, you bring in so many interesting aspects about religion, about mythology. I mean, much of your research has been on fantasies and myths and dreams and imagination. How do you find that women artists have confronted or explored beliefs and desires through these forms? Yes. Well, one of the ways that women were denigrated in the past is that they were frequently thought to be much closer to the irrational and somehow, you know, kind of continuum to the flesh, somehow being more enfleshed, being more creatures of the body and of biology. This made them more temperamental, more capricious, more irrational, more prey to fancies. I mean, it's been such a deep, deep commonplace in the tradition. It goes right back to Plato, you know, where he calls fairy tales, old wives' tales, foolish nonsense that old women tell to children. So, you know, that, that goes right back to Plato and it goes all the way through. And that, of course, is something for me is deeply attractive. I'm not upholding irrationality but I'm definitely upholding the life of the imagination and I think that it isn't necessarily the biological destiny of women to be more fanciful or fantastic or imaginative I think that's a false perception but I do think that it's a strength the fact that we are have been identified with that should be a strength and the artists that I'm drawn to and whom I admire and love are ones that work with that that actually go under that into that unconscious area and make something of it, even if it's raw and difficult and tough and sort of bloody and all the things that are meant to be so... Abject. Abject, yes, exactly. And also there's an honesty in it. I like the honesty. I like things that are uncomfortable being confronted. But I also like the prospect, the idea that they're looking forward to a better way, a better... I mean, Helen, of course, was completely radical in her determination to reorganize the aesthetic order. You know, she wanted to put the disgusting at the top. Yeah. And she associated the disgusting with bodies, not necessarily only female bodies. She was, because she had a very strong interest in sort of hermaphroditic or non-binary forms. And, and in fact, some of her work is photographs of close-ups of parts of the body in which you can't tell what gender or sex the person is. 
Yeah, I think there is that notion about sort of hybridity and this idea of transformation as well. And that also comes back to, I think, why someone like Kiki Smith and Helen Chadwick also bridge the kind of ancient and the present and the kind of celestial and the terrestrial. There is that kind of hybridity between them. Both of them had, you know, a background that was in some sense religious. Kiki is actually still rather Catholic, but she hasn't given it up. But she has a strong sense of the supernatural and of the weird. Both of them are interested in making things out of ordinary life so that there's a continuity between the studio and the home. I mean, Kiki still works in her kitchen pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, and, and, and Helen ha- did have a sort of section of her living room that was a kind of studio part, but she pretty much li- you know, worked yeah, in her house. And with domestic things, I mean, both of them are interested in domestic, everyday materials. In Kiki's case, she's much more committed to the transcendent than Helen was. Helen was more material-based. I mean, Kiki did a wonderful, wonderful series when her mother died, in which she portrayed dandelions and a lot of images drawn on tissue paper, as she often does, of, of ascensions. And then recently she did a series of marvellous tapestries. They're very, very cosmic, I think. They were I- images of connections between a, a body and then the body would grow roots and tendrils, not only down into the earth, as if they were returning to the earth, a cycle of the earth, but also tendrils that would go up to the stars. So there was a sense of the body, almost a Neoplatonist sense from the Renaissance, the body is connected to the heavens and to the celestial spheres. And I think that is really deep. She doesn't ironize that at all. That is really deep in Kiki Smith's vision, that we are kind of stardust that's fallen and, and we could fall deeper into the earth. But that's good because that's where, you know, growth and fertility all comes. And she also flattens the hierarchy between the animals. She's very, very close to animals, very keen on animals and has that sense they are our fellow creatures. You know, that we, we are the same as the birds that she draws. She did her training in a technical lab. And so in the past, she handled a lot of dead specimens and things. She has a quite a, really a hands-on. That is also similar to Helen, who also dressed the animals herself for, of mutability, the mm. great piece she made, and was keen to learn how to gut a lamb and how to gut a swan. No, no, she couldn't get a swan because she couldn't get a swan. It's illegal <laughs> to get a swan. She got her, She'd be in prison. <laughs> yeah, she got a goose. She got a goose, yes. She got a goose and she, you know, dealt with that. She wanted to know what the innards were like. So they both have that need to touch the viscera, not to turn away, not to have a polished surface on something that closes something off, but to know what its actual texture and, you know, all its sensuous aspects, all its qualia, to know that of what you're drawing or turning into. In, in, in Helen's case, she was photocopying these animals. Mm. But I mean, with Kiki's work, I mean, whenever I'm confronted with it, whether it be these like tapestries that have, you know, flickers of gold and silver in them or cobwebs that just completely immerse you, or like you said, you know, these merging of animals and humans in these sculptures. I mean, it's just extraordinary. Her output also ranges so much from tapestry to sculpture to prints to, you know, using these flowers. I mean, how do you feel when you are confronted with a work by Kiki Smith? Well, I often feel exhilarated. She's brought a little bit more of life into the world. And I like the experimentation with materials. Also, I think that, you know, a word one should use is beauty. 
I think that Kiki Smith not only challenges old ideas of what is repulsive, but she actually inaugurates an order of beauty. I mean, she has found these materials, this tissue paper, I mentioned it before, but this wonderful tissue paper that I think comes from Nepal. It's very, very resilient and strong, but utterly translucent and, and fluttery and sort of beautiful, like silk, but not as sinuous, more, crink, more crisper. Oh, so what does one mean by beauty? <laughs> mm. That's very difficult. But I mean, it's a, it's a sense of bringing out the qualities of some material that actually startles one into seeing those qualities, seeing the way it reflects the light, seeing the fact that it's so strong and at the same time so light and transparent. The be beauty in her case is also that she's a very fine draftsperson, and that engages you in a quality of looking and actually paying attention. And paying attention is in itself often a tool for discovering beauty. I mean, it really obviously related a little bit to meditation or to deep experience, I mean, like love. That deep attention will, will often release a sense of the world slightly expanding, growing, and, and being beautiful. And she doesn't put up barriers between anything, really. She doesn't say, you know, this is a low material, so I, I discard it. Yeah, I love how she kind of incorporates the jewellery that she's wearing or something that will one day be on a sculpture or something. <laughs> I mean, so much of your work is about exploring into mythology. I mean, how does Kiki Smith use the myth and kind of reinvent the myth through mm. her work? She likes a lot of stories of myths and she knows a lot of them. She'd read my book on the Virgin Mary and because she is very involved in Catholic mythology, she, she wanted me to write about her. So that's how we made friends. Well, myth was just important to me ever since I was a little girl. And it's still important to me. I don't think escapism is a rude word at all. I think living in a story is a marvellous place to be. <laughs> and, and I also quite like that all the terrible things that happen in stories happen in stories, <laughs> or perhaps in paintings. I mean, I know there is a relation to the world, but nevertheless it seems, and that's sort of strengthening somehow to encounter all this horror in a story and then close the book and it's, you know, it's safely in the book. It's only when you're a child that you think the book is going to jump out at you and but later on one gets to be able to keep it in its box. I like the ingenuity of myths, the fact that there's so many permutations and possibilities that myths come up with of all the things that might happen between people. And I just love, I mean, always have loved, and I think a lot of people do now, I notice they do, you know, more than ever. I mean, it's much more fascinating to go for a swim in the sea and imagine mermaids <laughs> than not, than to say in a rational way, well, there are no mermaids. I mean, I remember when we went to Brittany having fantastic fun with Conrad when he was young, imagining the dragons that lived in the tombs in Brittany. It's much more... I mean, I just find the, the imaginary world entertaining and deep and throwing up possibilities of what might happen or how it could be solved. Or, I mean, obviously some myths are deplorable and entrench the completely destructive ideas, but on the whole... The stories are, and you just can't believe fertility of the human imagination. So anyway, Kiki's very into that, and she's done hundreds and hundreds of works that are mythology-based, often in a feminist mode. I mean, she's done, you know, Eve's in which she upholds Eve as the sort of see the person who sees knowledge for the world rather than, you know, to condemn the world to death. But the female monsters in Kiki's work are always transvalued to become positive faces of human energy and female energy too.
But I think what's fascinating is the fact that, similarly to Helen Chadwick, they're both completely refocusing or reinventing the body in art. And, you know, we have this long history from the ancient Greeks of what a figure is supposed to look like in art. And suddenly it is a brain. It's a sort of floorboard. It's a photocopy. It's a liquid. And I love how in this sort of post-feminist movement, the body just gets totally obliterated and it becomes something else. I mean, how do you think that Helen Chadwick has reinvented the body? Well, Helen, of course, caused... An absolute furore with two of her early pieces. The first one was Ego Geometria Sum, I Am Geometry, in which she appeared nude. But I, I'll go straight to the other one because that created even greater furore about two years later, which was The Oval Court, which was part of a big installation called Of Mutability. And this was her big exhibition at ICA in the 80s. This, 1986 at yeah. the ICA. And she had two rooms. In the first room, there was The Oval Court, and then there was a pool in the centre, a pool of tears, blue, a deep, the deep, deep photocopy blue. And in that there were 12 figures, like the hours or the months, or I mean, the sort of 12 being a sort of rather mythological number. So there were 12 figures, or naked figures, in this pool, in various states of ecstatic excitement, sprawling, dancing, floating, with lots and lots of accoutrements, which were fishnet tights, trailing lace, jewellery, animals, and all these ecstatic women bacantes were dancing in, with these animals in the pool of water. And it came under feminist criticism because partly the men who reviewed it all liked it. And then women, some women critics, really denounced Helen for showing off her body, which was so beautiful, and claiming that she was forging a new language of female desire which is what she was looking for. But actually, she was just falling back into the old tropes of displaying your body for men's gratification. She was extremely upset by this and fought back, I think, very, very convincingly. And if you look at the work, the face is always averted. She lay on a photocopier to make these images, and they're made of thousands and thousands of collaged bits. So there's no sense that it's a representation of any real body. These are sublimated nymphs living in a metaphysical dimension. And then it was wrestling with ideas of female desire because she wanted to show women having pleasure without men. And then surrounding the pool with the 12 figures dancing were columns with cornucopia of leaves and vines and so forth, and her face at the top of each of the arches weeping. So the whole overall message is vanitas, both the cycle of pleasure reaching its apogee and then falling back and how it can never be repeated, it can never be retrieved, it can never be seized forever. So it was a meditation on the kind of existential state that pleasure is always, even if it's reached, it's vanished. And her chief inspiration was the Rococo churches and palaces of Bavaria, she had seen the exhibition at the V&A on Baroque, and this had lit her interest in lavish Baroque ornamentation. And she organized a trip to Germany to look at these extraordinary buildings, which are just a riot of you know, arabesques and broken columns and different twisting elements and nothing rests. And it's the art most dedicated to festivity and pleasure. And she wanted to retrieve that for a kind of female position 
She wanted that pleasure to be a woman's pleasure. There were many, many women involved. In fact, the day that she died, she went to the V&A to look again at the work of Anna Maria Garthwaite, who was a Spitalfields silk weaver in the 18th century, who had a business of her own which was very, very successful. So for Helen, Anna Maria Garthwaite was a kind of alter ego, this independent woman on her own, making this very decorative, very frivolous, exquisitely beautiful things. So if you like, it was a kind of act of defiance. It was a challenge. I am going to make frivolity and luxury feminist. You know, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, if I'm honest, like Helen Chadwick is a bit of a new artist to me. And I've always known of her as someone who's seen as a sort of precursor to the YBAs because she was so huge in the 80s and the kind of brilliance of artists such as Tracy Emin in the 90s who just reinvented conceptual art but also reinvented I mean for me Tracy Emin is also very baroque in a way and it's sort of dramatism if I think of my bed even the folds of that could be quite baroque and like the way that people live their lives is very baroque and Helen Chadwick was totally the sort of foremother she began as a punk oh really so she's completely the okay she's, you're completely right the only reason that she's faded in the minds of someone like you who knows so much about artist is that she hasn't really had a big exhibition for a long long time but also she died so young mm. she died at age 41 mm. of a heart attack but i mean i'd love to also kind of go back to because she was born in the early 50s in croydon i mean how what kind of generation did she grow up in and what was her route into art her route into art was that she was obviously from the very i mean she had a little microscope when she was a child she loved her toy microscope she looked at all this she would collect animals and earthworms and things. I mean, she already had this sense of pleasure in what might be considered often frightening or disgusting. Um, her mother is Greek, was Greek. She made several pieces that nodded towards Greek influence. Again, mythology is very important, but also Greek Orthodox Church. She wasn't at all observant, but nevertheless, the ethos was important to her. And then she got into university to do, I think, archaeology. But at the last minute, she decided she wanted to be an artist and she went to an art school in Croydon. She be immediately became quite a flagrant, outrageous punk in her work. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. And um, I mean, her first pieces are stunning. You can see photographs of them. She did something called Kitchen in which she, she dressed her friends at the art school in appliances that she'd made, a so soft appliance. So one, one young woman was inside a washing machine. Yeah. Another young woman was inside a cooker. She made a sexy stripper's sort of underwear for them to wear. So it was a real full-on attack on the idea of the, the housewife with her appliances. It was an attack on marriage, on conventional re relationships. So that's why when she made Ego Sum with her own nudes, uh, in this case printed from photographs onto geometric shapes in a sequence of, I think it's 12 scenes from her life, so it was her kind of idea that she had been formed and captured by these different stages of her life. So she was in an incubator, then in a pram, because she was born premature. And then at the end, she's holding the door of her house that she's got to Beck Road, her own studio house. And she's living there. She's, as it were, mistress of her own domain. And again, the face is always averted, but she's naked. And so that caused ruffles. But she wanted then, with of mutability to flip it over and rather than saying she was formed by her previous experiences and that she was in a way determined by her background and schooling and so forth 
in these geometric shapes. She was absolutely going to flip it over and say, no, we're now in a riot of self-expression, ecstasy, disruption. And this was this Baroque energy, yeah. this Baroque feast. Her subjectivity was making a breakout into a completely new and very dissolved, a world of dissolved relations. And a threat of death. I mean, a, th a threat of... She the sense of mortality is very strong in Helen's work. I mean, I, I s said that in my book, that, you know, because she died so young, it looks sort of prophetic, as if she sort of knew a lot, a lot of her work has got this sense that nothing now will ever last. It's all about to go. And how do you think she reinvented the body in art? Well, for one thing, she made this very strong claim that women should display themselves, however beautiful they were. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if they were beautiful, so what? They're not self-portraits. She's not presenting herself, because as I said, they're all collaged in great detail, so there's no sense in which it's an individual's body. It's much more symbolic. But she made that, I mean, if there's been a lot of self-display since, but she certainly made a great stand that that was possible and that it wasn't a kind of non-feminist position. In fact, it's become a feminist position, really, mm. to, to sort of face up to your incarnation, your incarnation being the self. Of mutability consisted of two parts. So there was the oval court, which I've described, with the figures in the pool. And then there was the pendant, which was in the next room, visible from the oval court, of carcass. And carcass was a glass column in which she had put all the detritus from all the animals and all the plants and flowers and all the things that she'd used to photocopy and make into the pool of orgy in the middle. She put them into this glass column and they began to decompose. And that was the point. So this was a Vanitas piece showing that, but it was also a piece about metamorphosis. It was showing the life cycle, that all this pleasure would go to feed this column, which is a compost heap, and the compost heap would gradually ferment and become rich loam for new life to emerge. Well, it was the hottest heat wave that had ever been in London, and the column began to bubble. So what happened? Well, it started leaking, then they tipped it over, and then it caused this absolute deluge of sludge that sort of <laughs> cascaded across the room, and then they destroyed it. Mm. And she was incandescent. The letters in her archive show that she was so angry because the piece was a whole. There was going to be pleasure here, and then this future, this future of decomposition and new life through waste. That was this philosophical structure. So it, that had gone, carcass had gone. Of course, it's never been seen again. I mean, obviously, it hasn't been reconstructed. I mean, I'm hoping they'll put on the oval court again because the VNA bought it. So it actually survived. She would never have been able to afford to store it. Yeah. It does survive, and it would be wonderful to see it reinstalled. And then I think I thought that maybe carcass could be a kind of hologram or something made from the original photographs because it wouldn't want to the same problem would occur. You can't really exhibit a compost heap. And how did you come to meet Helen Chadwick? Because I'm, I'm, I'm going to think you started to get to know her in the 80s. And what do you think she taught you? Well, I met her because well, I was making a film about, in fact, Susan Hiller was in it, in relation to my book, Monuments and Maidens, about female representations and allegory. I went to see Helen's Ego Geometria Sum and met her there to talk to her about being in the film. I was in, absolutely enchanted with her. I mean, I thought she was quite enthralling. I mean, an enthralling person. Very unusual in her manner of speech. She spoke in perfect sentences with very recondite vocabulary. 
And, and she was just her own person, extraordinary. She almost always, always wore black and white. She was very small. They think that that was partly how she died in the sense that she'd been a premature baby and she never grew to be very big. Mm. She was sort of child-sized still. I mean, how did Helen Chadwick kind of pave the way for this new feminist language that, you know, came to be in the 90s? And what is her legacy? Well, I think that the whole trajectory of her work paved the way. I mean, it began with those punk pieces that were in-your-face, agitprop feminism. Very amusing, very witty. I didn't mention that. I mean, she's, she was witty. Then it carried on the kind of way she used her own body, her, her exploration of subjectivity. But then later, she returned, in a way, to her outrageousness by doing all this work called meat lamps and wreaths of pleasure, which she used antithetical materials together to create these very fri- these frissons, sort of shivers of disgust and recognition of horror, but enticingness. So she'd produce a sort of disc, a kind of pool of beautiful pink something, and then w- with orchids, and the pink would be windoline. And then she would make others with fairy liquid. And so you would sort of first be enticed by these lovely colors, and then you'd realize that you're actually looking at some you know, cleaning fluid with a peach or a quince or a, a flower, like an orchid, or roses, rose petals. And she tested your sensorium to the limit, you were kind of being enticed and repelled and beckoned to and rejected. And this was very troubling and very exciting, actually. And it was all part of her campaign to change people's attitudes. And this, and it went on, really. It continued through all her work, that she, she defied pieties and conventions. Well, because I always thought that she was like this precursor to the 90s and how she was the one who, you know, introduced all these kind of bodily fluids. And if we look at someone like Damien Hirst's exploration of life and death, and it actually is quite Helen Chadwick-like in a way, or Tracey Emin, putting your sort of autobiography out there. And that's what Helen Chadwick did. She kind of used herself and her art, which kind of reinvented actually how artists lived. Also, I think just listening to you talk about this work as well, I want to see it. I want to experience it because I think that's what it's about. It's about being immersed in this person's world and just really getting under the skin of it, really. Mm. Yes. It's interesting. So you probably haven't ever seen anything. No. Mm. And I just hope that somewhere can restage this artwork because it feels so prevalent for the modern day we live in. But Marina, thank you so much for this incredibly insightful discussion. Before we close, we have one more question because this is the Great Women Artists podcast. And since Kiki Smith is still alive and you can ask her anything, if there was one thing that you might ask Helen Chadwick, what would that be? I think I would have liked to ask her if she could plant tree in her garden which tree would she choose marina warner thank you so much for coming on the podcast today (laughs) thank you thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the great women artists podcast with the brilliant marina warner Thank you so much to my sound editor, Nada Spinelic, and research assistant, Viva Ruji. Thank you again to my amazing sponsor, Alighieri Jewellery. Follow their journey on at Alighieri underscore jewellery to hear all about their latest collections and discover their magical talismans at www.alighieri.com. And don't forget to use the code TGWA at checkout for a 10% discount. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Women Artists podcast.